Hello, my name is Janice B. Gordon, and this is Scale Your Sales Podcast. Welcome to Scale Your Sales Podcast, listed as number nine of 43 best podcasts for every sales professional. I am Janice B. Gordon, the customer growth expert, recommended by LinkedIn Sales as one of 15 innovating sales influencers to follow. In today's episode of Scale Your Sales podcast, my guest talks about selling professionally. It's part of a best-selling book that he co-authored, but really it's his whole methodology of helping salespeople to modernize and really understand the buyer's journey and how much it's changed, how important the digital journey is, and how sellers need to understand where buyers are in the process and really help them to move forward within their own process. So if you're looking to modernize the way that you think about selling and the mindset that you need to have, then you really need to listen to my guest here. My next guest is a multi-award-winning sales and marketing professional and co-author of the best-selling book, Selling Professionally. Since 2010, he has been working with sales organizations in over 50 countries to grow revenue, increase profitability and improve personal productivity. As the global director growth productivity with Lind Group, he has over 21 years in his role, including Global Director of Sales Effectiveness and Global Head of Key Account Management. So please welcome Scale Your Sales podcast, Dr. Jeremy Node. Hi, Janice. Thank you for letting me be on the, the show and looking forward to it. Well, I'm looking forward to uh, having you on the show because I heard a lot of your insights when we met at the recent Institute of Sales Professionals. And I really wanted to get more of them on the podcast and get you to share that. First thing is that uh, I think you met Lind is everywhere. And I absolutely got what you meant. And then other people think, what do you mean they're everywhere? Because I know, know, know somebody that I did my MBA with that was BOC gases and, you know, industrial gases. It's in everything and it is everywhere. And I thought that was such a great phrase because you are everywhere and you're in everything, you know, in in terms of not only um, from a consumer point of view, but from an industrial engineering point of view. Yeah, very much so. I mean, I mean, Lindy's mission is to make the world more productive. And and we do that by by pretty much being in everything. So we're in healthcare. We're very big and focusing a lot of effort on clean energy and hydrogen at the moment. But we also sort of serve anything from the mom and pops in the welding shops or the quick fits of the world, those sorts of things, through to uh, defence industries, people who make sort of big trucks um, and help put rockets into space. So pretty much everything. Which is really, really exciting, helping put rockets into into space. (laughs) That's a good one, isn't it? Yeah, Yeah, it is. It is. Yeah. Yeah. I'm still waiting for the invite to go. But, you know, there's always (laughs) hope. Would you, though? Oh, God, yes. Really? Why, why wouldn't you? Because I like to have my feet on the ground. There's so much of the world to discover and unknown and unseen. Why do I want to be messing around up there? 
I think it gives you a better view of what's here. Yeah. And yeah. I think I remember sort of um, on a sidebar on that. I think, yeah, William Shatner went into space with Amazon and he came back and sort of basically realised how small it is, mm. how fragile we are and what we've got to do to sort of help sort of get this sort of uh, move to clean energy, to get rid of the carbon, uh, to sort of preserve life and, and all those good things and all those really important things. And that's also part of what Lindy does, um, you know, hydrogen for fueling, different things like that. And I think going into space would be a a, a, bet, a, a good way to get perspective yeah. on yeah. what actually is important rather than the arguments we see today with different things. I would certainly love to go up and just see that, you know, it mm-hmm. just looks yes. incre- incredible. But, you know, it's right. I love walking up a hill, you know, all the strain and stress to kind of get up there and the challenge. But once you're there, it's just amazing. It's so, yes. so rewarding. So I would imagine yes. it would be similar, but on a bigger scale. So tell me about the curse of shiny new digital <laughs> tools and apps and you know you're very much in the productivity um space so tell me more about that yeah and i think that is possibly one of the biggest drags on on salesperson's productivity efficiency and also peace of mind because what we see in the marketplace now and um i think it's nancy nardin did a sort of spreadsheet maybe 10 years ago these are all the different bits of technology you can have and she does it every year and the spreadsheet physically hasn't got any bigger, but all the brand icons have got a lot, a lot smaller. Yeah. It's microscopic and you have to zoom and zoom and zoom to find it all because we've seen a lot of micro segmentation in this, in this software area around sales productivity, sales effectiveness, how to do the price, how to do the contracts, all those things. And a lot of them are very good solutions. And they're all particularly prefixed by the words AI at the moment. But what we get is this sort of attention lag. And this attention lag is when we switch between tasks. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but basically the studies have shown us that it takes sort of, if you're busy doing emails, then you stop and go off to do something else. Then it takes you about 25 minutes to sort of move fully into focus about whatever the tasks you're doing, by which time your email's pinged. That's the most common example. So you can waste loads, loads of times by not being focused on what you, not being present in what you're doing now. And that can be exacerbated by these shiny new tools because somebody will come along and say, I've got the perfect solution to fix this one microprocess. And it is absolutely the perfect thing to fix that one microprocess. But what we have to do is take a step back from there and say, okay, how does that work get into our workflow? And not necessarily all the processes and automation, but how we actually do the work. Because if I have to go from A to B to C to get the answer to D, that theoretically on the 25-minute rule means it's taken me 115 minutes to, to to get to what the piece of information I want to know. And I think we end up with these shiny new things because somebody comes along and says, this is the perfect answer. And we get very enthusiastic about new technology. I think everybody gets enthusiastic about new technology. And we're not thinking about it in terms of constructing it both from a probably an IT joining everything together bit, uh, architecture sort of discussions, but more about the salesperson's experience because we get these lots of different different new tools. And then we end up with two things. One, we end up with a confused salesperson 
who's not sure which tool does what. We also end up with a graveyard of these shiny new things because the new next thing comes along. And I think where we could all improve, or many of us can improve, is, is looking at it through the lens of, is this making it easier for our salespeople to sell? And if it's not making it easier, it's, if it's adding a barrier by switching system or whatever it may be, um, that that could be where we need to sort of apply the the sales focus on this technology adoption. It's about that because the the analogy I have because I've reached a certain age is I start walking upstairs and if I stop, I might get to get upstairs and not remember what I've gone for because I've switched from doing one thing to another and got distracted from it. I've also got to the stage where if you stop halfway, I don't know whether you're going up or down, but it's that sort of losing yourself in terms of what's the next best action that you should be doing now to serve your customers, move a deal along or whatever it may be. And so I think there's, there's a piece of work around thinking both on the, not just on the technology, but on the behavioral side and how it helps and supports the salespeople to do their job effectively uh, not necessarily just shave a few microseconds off a process. I think it's a really interesting point you make because we often look at the architecture, don't we, rather than looking at um, people workflow and what's easy for them and, and, and what you say, does it make it easier for salespeople to sell? And I would add, does it make it easier for buyers to buy? Because the yeah. focus often is on buyers they need to buy, but we create all of those barriers. The Gartner has the, um, you know, the the view of the buyer and you just think, oh my God, this gets, you know, when you look at it, it looks ridiculous how complicated uh, that that is really. So it's often us that's making it, putting all the barriers in place for buyers to buy. Yeah, Absolutely, absolutely right, and I think that, yeah, and you can see examples of it. Into you can see it in 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 day to day things. I mean, yeah, I think we have to hold our hand up. You know, to interact with Lindy, depending on what you're doing, you might have to go to two or three different apps at the moment, which isn't good. You know, because in your private life, you're never going to do that. So we're we're looking at the digital journey and that how we can be more digitally friendly, more digitally approachable, and and move things to where customers want to go because i thought we've also seen this sort of quite seismic shift over the past sort of four or five years with this move to hybrid this idea of uh, having these conversations on zoom which was didn't exist a few years ago as it were uh it was skype or nothing but you know using zoom and that sort of thing because we've got to move to where the customers are and i think when we're going uh you know business to enterprise particularly we don't find that all the decision makers these buying groups have got a lot bigger, you know, from moving from seven to eight to 14 is the numbers being banded around at the moment. Getting 14 people in the same place at the same time, physically, at an office or at site, is incredibly, incredibly challenging now. And so we have to think about how do we make it easy for, for our customers to interact with us? How do we make it really easy for them to get the knowledge they need? How do we make it easy for them to ask questions and get the right answers at the right time. And so this sort of overarching move is, is I think, across all industries, is we need to move towards the buyer process, towards the customer, and almost look at it from that customer uh, point of view to, to, to understand what they need from us. 
Uh, and also going back to the shiny new objects, making sure we're delivering what they need from us. Not necessarily things that are super cool or nice, but aren't what they need. Um, um, you know, and I think if, if we all focus on making sure we do what we need to do and we meet the customer's needs, I think 95% of our time we'd have happy customers because our customers, when particularly in B2B, what you're actually doing is you're just a cog in their wheel for them to do their work. And therefore, you don't want to be a cog with a broken tooth or a rusty cog or anything else like that. So you have to blend into their processes. And an ideal process is when we don't think about it. So if we can do what we need to do to help our customers do what they need to do without them having to worry about whether we're going to let them down, whether it's the right thing, have we got the right quality, have we got the right solutions, whatever that might be across all industries, then I think we're in a stronger position and we're delivering what the customer wants. B2C is slightly different because there's there's more um, psychological things, more more sort of aspirational pieces in it. But B2B, if you're worrying about what your supplier is doing before you can get on with your job, you've got a problem. And I think that's the key thing. And I think that sort of came fully back into the fore during the sort of pandemic what we used to call hygiene factors suddenly became table stakes and differentiators. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that remains today because, you know, we have economic uncertainty. We have um, multiple, multiple challenges across different industries, different markets, uh, you know, and we need to flex and meet those challenges uh, and make sure that they can do what they're doing to help their local economy and do whatever. I um, interviewed um, Mick Gossett and we were talking about, well, his view is that sell success is down to 80% is deal management and actually only 20% is the sales methodology. And his rationale behind this is that you often get salespeople that have their own preferences in the way they want to sell. They may come from different companies. They can still get the deal, but actually the deal is done by understanding very much what you were saying, the the buyer's processes and making sure that you fit in with their buyer and help them to negotiate their own processes because there's so many more people around the table, not virtually around the table, that could actually block the process. So you, you have to be the guide to manage the deal management rather than you're selling a, a product. Absolutely. And I think that's true. And I think one of the things we've done recently is we've switched uh, or we've included in the sort of onboarding training uh, and also in some refresher training, uh, a formal sort of module and experience with our internal buyers to think about what do they look for from a vendor? How do they approach uh, segmenting, qualifying, uh, managing the ongoing relationship because it helps us give us an understanding about if that's what we expect then it wouldn't be a million miles for what other people will expect and so we're just trying to move it rather than saying we have a seven stage sales process and we're going to argue about whether it should be in stage three or stage four you know the labels all change but you know uh the, yeah there's these stages that is basic yeah we've got to move away from saying that is a true reality it's a map and the map doesn't reflect the terrain it's just a picture 
and it serves as sort of a, a checklist to see where you are, what you might need to do next and those sorts of things. But it's got nothing to do with the interaction with the customer. It's making sure we cover all the steps as we go through and help the customer make a decision. And so by thinking about what the buyer journey is, which is getting overused a little bit, I think, but thinking about how we buy, how other people buy, the research that's out there about how far along a sales process a customer may have gone. Uh, and we can resonate that quite well within uh, uh, our business because we think about it, you know, we're a big enterprise, so people come and try and sell us lots of things all the time. We sell things to enterprises and, and to B2B. And what we're thinking about is, okay, what do we do? And this is another piece. What do we do when we want to spend some money? And we have a number of processes, a number of stakeholders, and, and you know, nobody sort of uh, grabs a checkbook and starts writing out checks. We have some processes to make sure we're making the right decision. It fits with what we're doing, why we're doing, and everything else like that. And everybody else is the same. So we have to have that level of understanding. So I think there was a, a book a few years ago, which is like escapes the, the the author escapes me but it, the title stuck with me which is stop thinking like a seller think like a buyer mm-hmm. uh, and it's just taking that sort of mindset around moving our things to being more related to how they want to make a decision how they make a decision what information do they need to make a decision what information do they need to internally align or get the stakeholders or, or you know do the, the communications uh, and that doesn't always guarantee result in a, a business win, but it sets you in good standing. And if you apply that consistency, it will help you on your way. Yeah. Yeah. So I know that you're an advocate for improving the sales professional status and support individuals and organizations, improving their sales success. So tell me how how you how this works, how you do that. So the, the, there's two or three things. Um, one is, um, you know, with the Institute of Sales Professionals, they have um, set the, 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 the standards and the examination boards for what they call a level four uh, qualification in sales. And they have them in level four, five, six. And others around salespeople, retail people, key accounts, etc. And so one of the things around that is, is simple advocacy. And, and secondly, was in helping define that. Uh, piece to sort of say okay we can make it more professional how do we make these people understand things and then I think the biggest most recent piece of work is is I I, uh, worked with uh, Dr Beth Rogers and we literally wrote the textbook so if you're coming out of uh, school you're going into a sales apprenticeship uh, you with, with whichever provider most likely you will use the the textbook selling professionally um to cover all the pieces and that sort of is split into lots of details but about the knowledge the skills and behaviors of what we see you should be doing as a professional salesperson um and then uh also recently it's about sort of trying to make it more professional i've been working as the research editor for the international journal sales transformation and my job there was fundamentally taking all this academic insight academic research and trying to convert it into meaningful chunks which is relevant for people to apply in their business. And so we're trying to sort of take the, the, the knowledge from academia and say, how can we apply it and making that available for them? 
working to sort of help on the on the degree apprenticeships so they can sort of uh, have the right knowledge skills and behaviors to be successful and also uh more recently started mentoring a couple of people who are just completing uh their degrees uh and going into sales roles in in different uh companies still in the but mentoring them in terms of how they could uh, you know progress their career in, in sales so those are the elements I look at. I think it's very important that we 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 maintain the p- pipeline, we raise the profile, and we we be as best as we can in in sales, uh, because it does impact the economy. It drives and it makes possibility. You know, a salesperson makes possibilities apparent to others because they know the products, they know how to use the products, whatever that product may be or service may be, and making people aware of them might solve somebody else's problem. And so yeah. I think it's important all they do. So how do you evolve your salespeople continually within the Lind group? How do we? That's a very good question. <laughs> I think, you know, obviously we have the things, you know, we have career pathways, we have learning pathways. I think where we're spending a lot more time now is uh, around the digital pathways. So we want people to be more uh, data, uh, data-led um understand the systems and tools but not just be able to understand the report but also turn that report into action uh you know we have lots and lots of reporting going on but what are the actions behind that uh and we have sort of quite an active digital thing so what we are looking for is to see okay what can we develop in-house what can we build together what are the pain points and so we give people opportunities to continually challenge and um look to refine whether it's our, our buying our selling process our uh, incentive plans whatever like that we we try and look to see what we can do and what can we learn from it and a common thing we do is around benchmarking so we benchmark lots of things and um you know benchmarking's good ben- benchmarking is what i did my my uh, doctorate in uh so i'm obviously an advocate for it and i kind of like it um but there's always something to benchmark. I mean, not necessarily sort of saying, okay, you know, we're going to make it really, really complicated. But I, I was I was at the British Grand Prix the other week. Oh, you lucky so, man. I love Yeah, so that was really, really good. And yeah. so they have all the screens around there and the information and everything's going on. It's really interesting. And then I was watching qualifying on, on Saturday. And AWS for, for F1 produce yeah. this little map and it's called dominance and it says verstappen's really fast there and hamilton's really fast there and things like that and it's just a version of benchmarking it's looking to see where at a, a like a sub process or a thing like that where where are we good where can we improve and what can we take from each other so even if we have a team of three people we can benchmark because somebody's going to be benchmarked as being better at doing prospecting better at doing negotiations, better writing a proposal. So we can benchmark all sorts of different things to identify what what good looks like. And then we can work to get to everybody else to get to good. And that moves the level up and then moves the level up and moves the level up. So it's it's kind of an engine that drives continuing improvement. But we benchmark processes, digital tools, uh, performance, just to try and understand what good looks like and we and then we take all the factors you know what's the market or the economic situation but the underlying pieces is you know have we got a good sales comp plan what's our sales organization look like 
How does that compare to others? Benchmark them, see what's happening uh, and see if we can converge and say, actually, this would be a good thing. And if we all applied it uh, together, we'd collectively uh, be better. Um, and so we, we do spend a lot of time, uh, you know, fundamentally, a, a lot of my personal role now seems to be benchmarking, uh, you know, coming along from the corporate office saying I'm here to help, yeah. which is always greeted with a very strange look. It's like, really? Yeah, really? <laughs> I mean, it's interesting yeah. you talk about benchmarking. I'm I'm a, a partner in um, a database that's been going for over 25 years, and it's the only sales-specific verified, and it's a questionnaire. There's so much bias and waste within sales, the, you know, sales industry, and it's, you know, got a database of 2.3 million people. So it's global. And what it allows you to do is that very same, the benchmark and find what good really looks like. So from a recruitment point of view, you can almost throw anybody at it. And this will then what will rise to the top, what they identified for your industry and your region, your culture, you know, for the job role. This is what good looks like. Yeah. Um, or your existing sales team. There are 462, I think, or eight bits of data it looks like uh, at. And, you know, there are what's interesting. It's not really sales skills that create the success that can be taught. So much of it is, you know, what's your willingness to sell? What's your mindset? You know, your resilience. What's your own attitude to money and how that impacts your ability to to close and and what you will and will not accept? All of these things are things that are generally not measured in the individual. But if you were able to benchmark that so that you know that you have got the right person in the right position, to, you know, then they're yeah. going to more easily perform. Absolutely. I think, I think you're very right. And I think it's that sort of uh, data-led approach that, you know, thinking about that, you know, because it's the it's, it's the attitude and the indicators of behaviour, the skills we can talk, teach, the products we can teach. Those Those are things that can be taught. But it's about these this, this attitude and, and where you see your, your role uh, in related to the customer versus related to uh, making money for the company. Those sorts of things is 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 critically important. And that's a step towards professionalism, because if we know and we can sort of hire and, and profile uh, the right people into the right roles. I think there's probably a role in sales for pretty much everyone. But I think different roles and different markets and different product groups may require different things. And I think I, I see it because we are predominantly uh, industrial manufacturing um, in terms of we make what we sell. Uh, whereas we come a lot across a lot of um, processes and, and, and a lot of uh, positivity around sort of the SaaS framework of selling. Software as a service selling, and and they have a distinct model, and I think the model is correct for selling software. But where we sort of uh, diverge is saying, okay, is that the right model to, um, you know, sell hydrogen or to sell oxygen or to sell, um, you know, safety clothes or whatever it may be? I'm not sure. That, so I think there's room for it, and I think there's different skill sets for. To, to to 
to develop, certainly in the early career, to develop differently. Uh, obviously, as you reach a, a level of professionalism, you can sort of come back in and, and, and cross-fertilize over different things. But I think it's this sort of uh, using data to, to, to drive decisions, to identify opportunities to improve um, um, is, a, is a big change that we, we need to embrace and we need to make sure that we are uh, making decisions less so nowadays on um, one person's opinion, bias, whatever. And we need to sort of back it up with the data. Uh, that's clearly expected as we sort of, you know, go in and out of the organisation. But I also think there's a, re a space for um, getting better defined so we can actually help, you know, wh where we take that data set you talk about, it'd be really useful if we could um, get that in the in the careers meetings at schools to identify <laughs> who could potentially move into a sales role. Yeah, well, make it more professional it, path. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, it has the potential for that because it's got so much data uh, in there. That you, it's really not about um, measuring someone that is already in sales it, yeah. because the attributes are not really for that. I mean, you've obviously measuring some uh, sales attributes, but so much of sales is about mindset. Yeah, You know, that's, you know, so it doesn't really matter whether you've got sales experience. If you have it, you either have it or you don't have it. Um, yeah. So, yeah, the, the, it has a, um, a, a way of extending it to, you know, people in schools. And that's really where we need to kind of nurture more interests, uh, more people coming in into sales. So, you know, I'd agree with you. Yeah. Okay. So I've, if you were on a desert island on your own, what would be the one thing you took with you? Oh, I'd be very boring. I mean, I'd probably take a book. Uh, I, I'm guessing, uh, yeah. I, oof, is it like Desert Island's disc? I get 10 records, the Bible and Shakespeare is a given. No, no, you get one. Sorry. One. I'm oh, toughy, toughy. Yeah, just, uh, yeah. I would take a book and I would take Homer's Odyssey. And I'm not trying to sound too highfalutin about that. I just think that it's, you know, it's set over 10 years. So that's, you know, you can take it a bit at a time, uh, kill a bit of time. But I think it's about... Um, I enjoy reading and rereading it because it's, it's yes, there's a journey. And if you if you don't know, it sort of starts at the end of the Trojan War with this Greek hero trying to get back home to his family. And it takes in 10 years and, and, and has a series of incidents or adventures as he goes along. And, and the adventures are, 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 are nice little stories. But I think where it resonates, it's about what we talk about in sales, about resilience about having an objective of what, what you're trying to achieve. And so he's trying to get home. He's going to give me many challenges to get there. How do you do it? How do you respond to it? And I think that is uh, a key message for anything. For whatever happens, it's not the thing that happens. It's how you respond to it. And I think it acts as a sort of little roadmap of, of thinking about, okay, overcoming, um, overcoming obstacles, um, having a, a a guiding path, but not saying the only path is one way. You know, it's like climbing a mountain. There's not there's more than one way to do it, but the end result is you're at the top of the mountain. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, there's probably a hard way, an easy way, and a bit middle, middle way. But it's about the various things, overcoming the obstacles, having a fixed on the actual strategic objective of getting home, but the various sort of steps and how you overcome the the uh, the, um, the roadblocks on the way. Uh, so that's I probably think, what I take. I think it's a really interesting choice because when 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 you come like said that to me in the um, survey, uh, you know it's a classic. As you say, it's 10 years, it's 24 books. It seems like, Jeremy, you're planning to be on this island for quite a while, but that's okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. But it reminds uh, me of like Life of Pi, you know, where it's you can read it and read it again and you get different insights from the very same story. Yes. Um, And that's what, you know, you you would never get bored because there's always something to learn. It depends on where your mindset is at the time when you're reading it. And the yeah. insights you drive from these sorts of like Life of Pi, this one, is depending on your life experiences to the point you are reading it today will influence what you take from each story. Yeah. And yeah. I think that's also quite good because you, you'll have different perspectives. When I read it years ago, you know, when I was little, uh, it was an adventure story. Yeah. Uh, and it, and it progresses from that to sort of mean more about about a life and about challenges and and and, and those sorts of things. So uh, yeah, that's probably what I'd take. Well, I think you've introduced the book to the books twenty four um, to many many people on the podcast, and I'm sure that they'll they'll contact you and say how much they've enjoyed the story as as well, or what what insights they've gained from it. So thank you for that recommendations. It's reminded me add it back to my list and and read it again because it's years when I did as well. So how can listeners get hold of you, Jeremy? Uh, most likely on LinkedIn, uh, where it's simply Jeremy Node, all one word, uh, and on Twitter or X, just to sort of put a timestamp on on the uh, on the recording. <laughs> but uh, on Twitter, again, just Jeremy Node. Um, less so on Twitter nowadays, but you can always ping me a message on there. I'll find it. But LinkedIn, uh, sad to say, I'm probably on there every day. So. <laughs> That's what they want, isn't it? They want us all on there every day. That's it. Excellent. Thank you so much for being a guest on Scale Yourselves podcast. I always enjoy um, learning from from you. And uh, yeah, thank you for the reminder to get the classic Odyssey back on on my list again. So thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me on. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Scale Yourselves podcast. If you like this discussion, feel free to listen to other episodes or watch the caption show on YouTube and subscribe to future episodes. I would really appreciate it if you would leave a positive review on iTunes. Thank you.